If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Mark, Mark chapter 10, and we'll be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses uh, uh, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife, and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, your uh, word is good and right and pure and holy, that it's perfect, that it revives the soul that your precepts are right, they give joy to our hearts, that the commandment of the Lord is pure, it enlightens our eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is a great reward, says David. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and our time in your word be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, today we're going to talk about, um, I'm trying to get this thing going on my watch, y'all, forgive me. There we go. All right, just so I'm keeping track of time. So, all right. So uh, the temptation today is uh, really to skip the passage that we're looking at this morning. If you were with us two weeks ago, we talked about this doctrine of hell and just how real it is and how it's tempting to overlook that, um, but we can't, right? Today, uh, our subject uh, is probably just as bad because for those of us who have been divorced or those of us in the room who've been divorced, that divorce can feel like a living hell. Uh, and I'll be honest, uh, there's much fear this week uh, thinking about this day just because I know that some of us in this room have been divorced. Some of you in the room uh, are currently thinking about a divorce. Some of you in this room have been divorced and you've remarried. Some of you in this room are single and you've watched a friend go through a divorce and get remarried and you still haven't found a spouse. And so the whole idea of talking about divorce when, Lord, can I just get married once, right? 
that I get it, right? To talk about something like this is hard. There was a woman who, in 2013, she journaled what she was feeling uh, in her divorce. And she says, this is what she writes. She says, marriage is this beautiful, amazing, loving, caring union until one day it's not. Sure, some marriages last, but many crash and burn, leaving a huge mess and intense heartbreak behind. No matter if you are the one who asks for the divorce or not, they say marriage takes a lot of work, and it does, work that can be rewarding. But divorce takes even more work, and that kind of work is never rewarding. You'll be lonely, incredibly lonely. He or she is not going to be there ever in the way that they were initially. You'll have to remind yourself that you are not a failure, even though your marriage failed. There's an in-law situation, and you won't know how to carry on that relationship with them. When your children are sick, you can't call someone in the other room to help you with them. When you are sick, no one is in the home to, to help you. You'll feel awkward without your wedding ring. Feeling it, on there, feeling it there on your finger and what it represented. You won't know what to do with your wedding album or your wedding dress. There will be a lot of what ifs. You'll lose family and you'll lose friends. And all of this makes you terrified to get married again. And then you have what divorce can do for children or two children. Debbie Barr, she wrote a book entitled Children of Divorce. And she says, we most often overlook the effect of divorce on our children. It happens to them, only they are not as resilient. The losses, both tangible and intangible, can be incredible. Sometimes one sibling lives with one family member while the other lives elsewhere. The family home that they grew to love will have to be sold a child might have to change schools, make new friends, and because income is now diminished, fewer clothes, fewer toys, fewer outings. And then there are aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents on that side of the family that you virtually lose contact with. The guardian parent is usually tired and struggles to parent alone. Some children begin to question the presence of God. They struggle to concentrate in school and wrestle with identity. That's why it's hard, because I fear misspeaking. I fear underspeaking. I fear overspeaking. And yet we can't avoid it. Jesus does it. He talks about it. He tackles it head on. And it's for our good to wrestle through hard passages on hard subjects in God's Word. So the first thing I want us to think about as we look at the passage is the wrong question asked. If you're taking notes, the wrong question asked. That if you look at how, Mark, how this section begins, Jesus is no longer in Capernaum. Mark actually tells us that he's changing locations now. That he is, uh, according to Mark, he left Capernaum 
and went down to the region of Galilee, I mean, the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And so we, Jesus is moving closer to Jerusalem. And we who have an eye towards the cross, we know that he's never going to make his way north, right? That he is marching towards the cross. And so when he gets there, Jesus is this people magnet. The same thing has happened everywhere Jesus goes. People are captivated by his presence. And so they flock to him. And Mark says the crowds are there again. And notice what Mark says Jesus does. He says Jesus taught them as was his custom. In other words, Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He's not just a healer that Mark is couching Jesus as the teacher par excellence. Mark actually says that Jesus teaches with authority and not as one with the scribes or Pharisees. And so what's happening here is that Jesus is teaching. He's holding classroom and then these class clowns show up, right? The Pharisees. And this isn't the first time in Mark's gospel where they do this. Everywhere he goes on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees are following him. He does this miracle and the Pharisees are following him. He does these miracles and they say, well, you're doing this by the power of Satan. Everywhere Jesus goes and has fruitful ministry, you get these clowns that are kind of following him. And they're doing the same thing here, except here they come and the text says they come to test him. So that has to shape the whole thing. They're not asking about marriage because they care about marriage. Somehow what they're doing is sinister. They have ulterior motives that they're not letting on to. And here's the thing. Jesus says, okay, I will oblige your interruption because even though your motives are corrupt, we're still going to talk about something that's beautiful and something that's glorious. And so notice what Jesus does. They ask him the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And notice what Jesus says. What does Moses command you? He didn't answer their question. He says, I'm the rabbi. Let me ask you a question. And what does he say? What does Moses command you? Now, this is radical. It's radical because when we want to have a conversation around marriage or around divorce or anything, our knee-jerk reaction is to say, what does the culture of the day say? Or what do I feel or what do I want? That ain't how Jesus answers their question. He says, what does Moses say? That is his way of saying you cannot talk about divorce or marriage apart from what God has written through the prophet Moses. He's pointing them to the word. Now, notice what happens. They actually say, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He's quote, they're quoting Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And we'll come back to that. But notice that they go back. So here's the thing. Jesus says, okay, I give you that, but y'all ain't going back far enough. You see, they went back to Deuteronomy 24, but if you open your Bible to Deuteronomy 24, it's right here. And you know what's back here? A whole lot of other stuff that Moses wrote. Leviticus is before Deuteronomy. Numbers is before Deuteronomy. Exodus is before Deuteronomy. And Genesis is before Deuteronomy. And notice what Jesus goes. He basically says, y'all think y'all slick. 
Y'all going back to the part in Deuteronomy 24 when God gave you, he says, look, if you're going to divorce, it has to happen on these terms, but you're failing to realize you jokers are trying to figure out how to get out of a marriage. That's the wrong starting point. The, wrong, the right starting point is the beginning. What did God create marriage for? Jesus is in essence saying you can't have a conversation around divorce without going to the word. And then when you go to the word, you can't be selective to choose the verses you want to choose without going back to what God said in the beginning. And so notice what Jesus quotes. He says, but from look at verses six or nine. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two people, but they're one flesh. And what God has joined together through the sacred covenant of marriage, he says, let no man separate. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's going back to marriage and the first wedding, the first wedding in the garden where God presided over the ceremony, where God made all things out of nothing. And then God made Adam, and God gave Adam power. God gave Adam presence and access to the one true God. God gave Adam possessions. There was silver and gold all on the earth. Adam had authority to name all the animals. That is authority and power. And yet what the Bible says is that it was not good for him to be alone. There was not found a suitable helper fit for him. The animals had each other. And if we believe in this eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit living together in eternity, then the Godhead had community within the Godhead, and yet Adam, who is like God from the dirt, does not have anything like him on the earth. And so God himself says, that's not good. It's not good that you, though I, the triune God, have community. Though the animals over here have community, there's not anyone like you on the earth. And then God himself made Adam go to sleep. And God himself took a rib out of Adam's side. And God himself went away, maybe behind a tree, and formed Eve. And then God walked Eve down the aisle. And God gave Eve to Adam. And God woke Adam up. And Adam laid eyes on Eve. And it's the first song in the Bible he says, at last, at last, where have you been my whole life? These hours, right? And what was marriage for? I want to make the case to you that it is, it is for six overarching ideas. One, marriage was meant to be permanent. What God is joining, let no one put asunder. There's a permanence to it. Marriage is also to be priority. It says a man will leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And so as much as we value other people and our parents and even our children, 
God says marriage between your spouse, one man, one woman, that takes priority over everything except your walk with me. So it's a priority. Marriage is also for procreation. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have children, and fill the earth with my glory. Marriage is for pleasure, for one man to, and one wife to know each other intimately in ways that no one else gets to know and participate in. And even if you can't have children, there is still pleasure in the bedroom if you're, if you're married. There is deep intimacy and knowing and bonding that's just not sexual. It's all of life. It's social. It's economic. It's you name it. It's there. It's a program. What's the program? Rule the earth. Explore the earth. Know me. See me. Worship me. Love me. Work and serve in creation. Spread my glory throughout the face of the earth. In other words, marriage isn't just for you. It is to be a blessing to the world and to the creation, the created order is what God is saying. And marriage is a picture. It's a picture of the way Jesus loves his church and the way the church relates to her Jesus. Every time we're getting married, our marriage is supposed to be a picture, not just to the world outside, but it's a picture to the people in the marriage as well. That's God's intent. And so they're asking him how to get out. And Jesus is saying, bruh, like, can we talk about what it was made for? You're asking me the wrong question. Now, look, some of us know Martin Luther by way of the Protestant Reformation. 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of Witt in Wittenberg. And we know salvation by grace alone, faith alone, through Christ alone, the inerrancy of the scriptures and, and the, the, the living lives of repentance. But, but one author writes, few of us know of Luther's commitment to marriage. Now, Luther didn't get married until 1525. 1517 sparks a reformation. And from 1517 to 1525, you know what he wrote about? He wrote about marriage and the beauty of marriage even though he didn't want to be married, right? I, I'm going to read you what he writes about marriage, right? Here's what he writes. I could not marry. It does not attract me. I would rather work in the kingdom of heaven and beget spiritual children and care for the bride of Christ. Furthermore, I will probably die a martyr, and I do not wish this pain on any woman. This is Luther. I don't want to get married. No intention to get married. And he keeps studying and he keeps writing about it. And all of a sudden, these nuns, these nuns in a convent, they get some of Luther's sermons. And all of a sudden, they're like, Luther, you got to come free us. We don't want to be in here. We want to get married. You talk to us about marriage. And then and here's the thing. On Easter Sunday of 1523, you want to know what Martin Luther did? Him and another man came up with a plan to go rescue those nuns. 
they had some horses and a trailer and 12 barrels of fish. Mackerel, I think, is a type of fish. And the convent wanted fish, so the man drives his buggy and horses into the convent, and he drops off the fish, and there's 12 barrels of, of, that used to be fish, and then that same wagon came out, and it came right through the exit point, and you know who was in the barrels? 12 nuns. 12 nuns that Luther had been communicating with wanted to be married because a man who wasn't married, who didn't want to be married, talk about the beauty of marriage. And you know what happened? Most of them got married. Luther found them spouses. Some of them had to be reunited with their families because they couldn't find a husband. Few of them, they were able to find employment. And there were two. Their parents couldn't afford them. Nor a man, nor work, uh, couldn't work. And so Luther found somewhere for them to stay. And then, here's what happened. Luther, he writes this. I often studied and wrote about marriage and had no desire for it. However, isn't it like God to do the things we least expect? I sense him overtaking me with this desire. And you know what happened? He went and got one of the women who couldn't find a husband, and they didn't even get along, right? Listen to what one historian says. It was an open secret in Wittenberg that Martin and Katie did not get along very well because of their clashing temperaments and personalities. Certainly they were not romantically in love. Marriage counselors today would have questioned the validity of their marriage, right? They're saying they didn't even get married for, quote, love as kind of we know it. And he married her. And they complimented each other. One day Luther came home and he struggled with depression. And he came home and his wife opened the door and she was dressed in all black. And he says, oh, my love, who died today? And she says, you're acting like your God is dead. Well, if he's dead to you, I'm going to go with you to the funeral. Let's go. That's what she told her husband who was struggling with depression. Like, you got to snap out of this. Your God is alive. And by the time Luther uh, was about to pass, listen to what he wrote about his bride. You were the morning star of the Reformation, or uh, morning star of Wittenberg. My Katie, you are in all things so obliging and pleasing to me that I would not exchange my poverty with you for the riches of the world without you. That it was known that while Luther preached, lectured, and traveled, Katie drove the wagon, took care of the field, bought cattle, and she brewed beer. <laughs> Rented out their horses, and she often nursed him back to health during his frequent illnesses that by the time he passed, this woman that he was not romantically in love with, he says, you are the greatest treasure I ever had. And when he passed, his wife wrote about him, my Luther 
taught me to cling to Christ as a burr clings to a dress. You know what a burr is? It's like when you're walking in the fields and you come back in and you got all them little brown sticky things that's on you and you're trying to do this to get it off and it won't get off. That's what she said about Luther. You taught me to cling to my Christ. Look, that's God's picture of marriage. And here's the thing. Your name can be Keisha and Leroy. It can be Terry and Susie. And that's what God is after. You don't have to spark the Reformation. But you can have this. You can have this with one another. Which leads us to our second point. God's righteous response. Something happened after Genesis 2. And it's Genesis 3. And it's the fall. It's when Adam and Eve disobeyed and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they ate of that tree, there was fracture and brokenness three ways. There was fracture and brokenness vertically that now all of a sudden God comes and they run. Now all of a sudden God comes and they blame. There was also a fracture towards creation. That thorns and thistles now grow among the earth. It's what Rome, Paul is saying in Romans that all of creation, it groans for the revealing of the sons of God. We have subjected creation to the fall because of our choice and its fracture and brokenness in the home. Now, all of a sudden, Adam doesn't want to love wifey like he ought to love wifey. Now he want to trade her in. It's her, it's her fault. You gave her to me. Go get me a new one. Bring, a, bring me a new one, right? She's not going to want to submit to him. She's going to want to rule over him. They're going to be bickering and competing for headship and authority. He's going to lord it over her. And by the time you get to Deuteronomy 24, you travel from Genesis 3 through Abraham and Sarah and him sleeping with Hagar through Jacob, who is in love with Rachel and Leah, that by the time you get to Exodus chapter 20, God actually has to say, hey, yo, adultery ain't cool. It's one of my Ten Commandments that I'm now forbidding amongst you. And then when you get to other passages after Exodus, like Leviticus 21, Leviticus 22, and Numbers 30, you start to see that there are people who are divorced and there are orphan children all in Israel. So that when you get to Deuteronomy 24, after, Deut- after Ex- uh, Genesis, th- Genesis 3, you get the fall and then you get the fracture and fracture and fracture and fracture and fracture and fracture. And finally, you get to Deuteronomy 24 and God says, enough, enough. If you're going to divorce your wife, you have to find something indecent in her and you have to present a certificate to her. We would presume that before that, they didn't do it. And even in Deuteronomy 24, when we interpret that word something indecent, you got two sides. One side said, if she burns your food, you can give her a certificate. I'm not like, like this is, I'm for real. 
If she gains weight, give her a certificate. If she disrespects you publicly and rolls her, you know, you can give her a certificate. This is the pervading school in Jesus' day. And then there was a conservative branch that said, hey, it has to be less serious than adultery because in Jesus, back in the Old Testament, adultery was met with stoning. So the indecent in Deuteronomy 24 isn't adultery because adulterers were stoned. But it has to be not over there with those jokers talking about. We just don't know. But it is not as loose as they're thinking. And so notice what Jesus does. He says, yeah, you're right. Moses commanded the divorce certificate. There's a guy by the name of Joachim Dawa. We had to read his book when we were in ethics in the seminary. And here's what he writes about the divorce certificate. He says, the existence of the divorce certificate put breaks on, on would-be quick divorces. Husbands had to be able to find something indecent. A divorce certificate had to be drawn up and its formulation had to be proper. And the husband would then have to enlist the help of a third party, a process that prevented quick divorces. In Israel, marriage was not an institution that allowed a woman to be shunted from one man to another only to return to her original husband. Does this not indicate that although divorce was allowed or permitted, it could never be treated as something routine? That's what he's writing about how we understand the divorce certificate from Deuteronomy 24. It was put in place because of sin. And Josephus, the historian, he actually says that this wasn't just something men did. They have cases of women starting this process. And they too had to go out and get the help of a third party. Can you imagine what it feels like to have that color your marriage. If I burn the food, you can get out. If I lose my temper, you can get out. And notice what Jesus says. That's not the intention. That was a concession that God made. Why? Look at what Jesus says. Because of your hardness of heart. And what's ironic here is that though Jesus is quoting what was written in Deuteronomy, he doesn't say because of their hardness of heart. This is the eternal your. It means that whenever we read this passage on any age, at any time, Jesus is saying, hey, don't be quick to go to Deuteronomy 24 because that was added because your hearts are hardened. In other words, you have a process here that I think was built in to do three things. It was built in to slow down. It was built in to thaw out. And it was built in to bring others in. Those three things. How is the divorce certificate functioning? It's functioning to slow things down to give hearts time to thaw out and to bring somebody else 
into the problems that are happening in the marriage. Now, why? Why do we need time? I get it, man. When, when marriage gets hard, we want to rush. You can go online right now and Google no-fault divorce, and somebody will call you back tomorrow to end your marriage. And that is from the pit of hell. Think of how you court your spouse and how you pursue your spouse. And if you're like me, my mother-in-law made me wait a year after I had asked for my wife's hand in marriage. And it was the longest year of my life. And do I really think I should be able to divorce my wife in a day? That's what God is doing. He is saying, slow down. He's also saying, give me time to thaw out. You see, when it uses the hardness of heart language, our temptation is to think that the hardness of heart that we have is ultimately towards a spouse. It's not used that way in Scripture. When Scripture uses hardness of heart, you want to know who our hearts are hardened towards first? It's up there to him. That that's where the real problem begins. And when our hearts grow cold towards him, when his word does not convict us, when his warnings did not, does not rebuke us, when his wisdom does not amaze us, when his grace does not impress us, when his guidance does not, is not submitted to, and we want to do things our own way, our hearts are hardened towards him first. And then everybody else around us are there for the fall. And so what does God want? Give me time to thaw that cold heart out. Give me time for the saints to get on their faces and pray. Give me time for my word to be preached over this couple. Give me time for my spirit to work. It was meant to give time to hurting couples that God might thaw out hardened hearts. And when that didn't work, you invite the third party in. And it's not grandmama them. And it's not your homegirl them who going to bash your homeboy. You know what I'm saying? Like this third party in Moses' day was probably Moses. And it was probably the elders. He entrusted oversight to the people too. In other words, he had to come not to a lawyer first, but to the church and to spiritual leaders who have their hearts attuned in two places. On the one hand, there are allowances for divorce. If you read the sister passage to Mark 10, it's in Matthew 19. It's almost identical, except in Matthew 19, Jesus says, if a man divorces his wife, except on grounds of sexual immorality. 
So right there, Jesus is giving an allowance, and the allowance is pornea, the word that we get our word pornography from. He's talking about adultery or rank sexual sin. And some would say it could be this giving over to pornography, where it does not have to be a physical relationship with a real person. It can be now through all the mediums that we have, this bit towards doing what is demonic and harmful and, and, and imprisoning to the degree that your heart gets hardened and you want to do you and listen to no one else and hurt whomever else to gratify your own lust. Those are grounds or allowances. You get 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul speaks to a couple. And one of them, who's an unbeliever, he's like, yo, I'm done. I'm out. I don't want God. I don't want him or I don't want her. I'm out. And over time of a process of rebuking and praying and counseling, Paul says, hey, let him go. You're free to marry in the Lord. And one of our position papers of our denomination, it would add physical abuse to the abandonment allowance. I want to read this carefully. A husband's or wife's violence particularly to the degree that it endangers the other spouse's safety, if unremedied, seems to us by application of the biblical norms to be as much a ruination of the marriage as adultery or actual abandonment. These are concessions. These are allowances. Now, here's the thing. you got to have leaders who hear that. But that's not the only thing they hear. We also hear what Mark says. Did you catch what Mark says? Mark says, whoever divorces his wife and remarries another, and notice there is no allowable clause in Mark chapter 10. It's in Matthew 19, but it's not in Mark 10. Whoever divorces his wife and remarries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So what's happening here? Are they contradicting each other? Absolutely not. It's a symphony that's being played by Scripture. And you got to hear this piece. And you got to hear divorce is never commanded ever in Scripture. That it was meant to be for better or for worse and richer and in poorer in good times and in bad times until death. And see, here's what often happens. We often want to silence one or the other. If I want out of my marriage, I'm going to turn down this sense of permanence because I want out. And if you're the person, the offending person in the marriage, and you don't want to repent of your sin, you know what you're going to turn up? You're going to turn up the permanence, but your butt not going to repent. And you hear what the Bible is saying? You got to hear both. You got to hear both. There are times when marriages cannot be remedied 
by the church, where the church pastors and walks with people through the valley of the shadow of death, and they pray and they try and they pursue. And it's obvious that the other person in the marriage does not want the marriage. And most of the time, they don't want Jesus either. And that's when leadership, you are free to remarry in the Lord. And there are other times, and I've seen it, where people stay. And they work through some of the most unimaginable. And they stay. And they stay. I'm going to close with this. Our last point. The whole gospel needed. We've talked about the wrong question asked. We've talked about God's righteous response. The whole gospel needed. I have a few people in mind. I'm sure that there are a lot of us in this room. We're married. We've never been divorced. What are we being called to do with passages like this? Cherish your spouse. Find joy in the Lord with them. Think deeply about the vows you made. And God's design for marriage. And live into that. Jean Vanier, Vanier says that there are three stages in life together. There's the honeymoon phase. And that's when everything is like good, right? And then you hit the letdown stage. And that's when our sins start to come out. Our baggage, our struggles the areas where, man, we're just not believing the gospel. And there is a tendency to want out when we get to that stage. But he says the beautiful thing about community is when you move into covenant. It's this idea that I will see your baggage and your struggles, and I'm going to stay. And I'm going to stay. Here's my question. Where is the power for that? It's not in your love for your spouse. It's in your spouse's love for you. Man, when I think about how Jesus loves me and forgives me and has come from glory to pursue me, and he doesn't say, if you do that, you're out. When I think about the beauty of Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, who came to the earth to breathe air on a rescue mission, a rescue mission from Hosea and a rescue mission in the book of Revelation. He was not just coming to make me a Christian. He was coming to make me his bride. He was coming to join himself to me and never leave me and never forsake me and never turn his heart away from me. That is the power in marriage. If you don't know of that love there and your love for him does not compel you, what does it compel us to do? It compels us to go and to do likewise.
And so we can be patient with spouses because he's patient with us. We can be long-suffering with spouses because he's long-suffering with us. And we can even speak the truth even though it hurts and even though they don't want to hear it because Jesus sometimes gets all in our hearts and he's not just there to give us the warm and fuzzies. Sometimes Jesus calls us out on our sin and he calls us to repentance and then he says, come home, baby, you're still mine and I ain't went nowhere. It's the power. And you know how I know this works? Because in Matthew 19, you want to know what the disciples said when they heard Jesus say this? They said, Jesus, who can love a woman like that? They said, nobody can do it. It's better that we just not get married. Like that was their response when Jesus gave them his view of marriage. And then if you turn over to 1 Corinthians 9, you want to know what the Apostle Paul said? He says, do I not have a right like the rest of the apostles and the brother of Jesus and Peter to take a believing wife? In other words, something happens in between Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 9. You know what happens. Them jokers got converted and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were new men enabled with new power to love their brides like Jesus loved them. You can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do it. What about those who have endured a divorce and remarried and you've gone through that process? Where you waited and you've tried, you tried to give time for that other person's heart to thaw out and it didn't. And there were spiritual leaders who moved and acted on your behalf and God was kind enough to send you a spouse. Praise God. He is good to you. He has been faithful. Drink deeply from the love and faithfulness of your husband and cleave and cling to one another by the power of the Spirit. You need the gospel just like we do. What about those who endured a divorce and there was no process? Man, I'm telling you, if, if, if there was, I didn't know about this. Like, there was a time in my life when I was a new Christian. What do you mean you got to go through a process, right? What do you mean I got to submit myself to some elders? Right? Like, what do you mean? And so I'd imagine that there are some of you in this room, maybe you weren't a Christian and your first marriage failed. And maybe you didn't go through process. And you kind of deal with the shame. How does God look at me? right here and right now. I want to say to you that your first failed marriage is not the unpardonable sin. Something's happening in this passage. In Mark chapter 3, Mark tells us that the Pharisees went to consult with the Herodians on how to put Jesus to death. Who were the Herodians? 
They were the political party in, in Israel at the day who aligned with King Herod, both the daddy King Herod and the son King Herod. They aligned themselves with them. And so Mark says that the Pharisees left Jesus, went to find them, and they put a plan together to kill Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Why is that important? What's the question that they just asked Jesus? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Hmm, don't that sound a little familiar? Isn't that what John the Baptist preached against Herod? He says, Herod, what you're doing is not lawful. Same word. And what did Herod do to John the Baptist? He cut his head off. In other words, when they come back, they know what they're doing. They're trying to catch Jesus in a trap so that they can go and run and tell Herod, either Jesus is against you and he's going to suffer at your hand, or either he's against John the Baptist and the people are going to call him a false prophet. Either way, they put Jesus in an impossible situation. And you want to know what Jesus says? He says, you go run and tell Herod, whoever, and I mean him too. And in Luke, it was Herod who played a part in killing your Savior. In other words, Jesus answers firmly, knowing full well that by answering this way, he's going to go to a cross. And who is he going to die for? Adulterers. And he says, you know what? I want you. You're mine. No shame. I've paid for it. No shame. No guilt. It's finished. And what about those who are divorced and are still not married? That woman at the beginning, she feared being alone. She feared feeling like a failure. She feared raising her kids without help. She feared being sick and having no one to love her. And if that's you this morning, you are not alone. You do have a husband, and his name is Jesus, and you do have a family. We're right here in this room. May you not walk through this dark season by yourself. God has given you himself and his bride. Well, what about my children? What about all the stuff we hear about what divorce does to children? You know what Jesus says? I have a heart for orphans. I'm a father to the fatherless. And I'm a mother to the motherless. So help me, God. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you. We love you. We thank you for your word. Amen.